1: Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my special friend, Mark.
2: How are you today, Mark? I'm feeling very special, Walker. How are you? I'm feeling very good.
1: Mark, we've been going for a whole year. No breaks. I think I think that's worth mentioning. So that means we'll be taking the next two months off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to announce uh, Kingston New Year. That's Kingston right. New Year starts on January the 1st and it ends in May. That's right. So we'll see you
1: then. Bye-bye. So, Mark, this is a podcast where we talk about board games. First, we're going to talk about the game that we reviewed exactly one year ago. Then we're going to talk about some games we played this week. And then we're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic of the week, which is combat systems.
2: Fight me in real life, Walker.
1: It's a date. Actually, we should do that. Instead, of, we'll, instead of, we'll take a break from...
2: Uh, no, no, that was, that was what games. we call a joke. And then we'll... You would destroy oh. me. <laughs> I would be rendered a smear upon the walls of our historic <laughs> studio. But i do WWF style. Have you, have you seen you? Have <laughs> you seen me? <laughs> <laughs> uh. I didn't spend far too much time and far too much money at McGill learning how to fight people. <laughs> I learned how to be a useless individual. There you go. It's called a university education mark. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly.
1: One year ago, we reviewed Cthulhu Wars, which we've played a couple times. At least I've played a couple times. You've probably even played it more than that. I have. It is a staple, I think, in the gaming community. It's a, a perfectly legitimate, awesome dudes on a map. Troop. Sorry. Tro- sorry g- troop. Giant troops on a map. There you go. Game.
2: Yes, we have retired the term dudes on a map, as a number of other reviewers have because of its gendered connotations. And yeah, Cthulhu Wars is great. I have been playing with some of the new content. The problem with every Cthulhu Wars Kickstarter is that it releases a couple of new factions, which I'm more than happy to try. And about 5,000 other add-on extraneous things, which I don't really want to add because when you start adding in things like neutral units and neutral great old ones, there's all this stuff off to the side. And meanwhile, you're managing your spell books and your opponent's spell books. I would rather my attention be focused on that than, than other weird stuff off to the side. Yeah, because then
1: it starts to fall into that poor category of, you know, you open the box and look at all the stuff and then slowly close the box and
2: I don't want to read all of that stuff again. There are going to be two new factions coming out. The Well, three factions, really. There's the Demon Sultan. Azathoth is finally getting its own appropriate faction. There's going to be Bubastus and a whole bunch of other weird cosmic cats. And then there's also going to be a faction using the components from Planet Apocalypse, the other absurdity. And so we're now going to be up to many, 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 many factions. And at the same time as all this bloat is happening, glorious bloat. I like that kind of bloat. Endless factions, I'm always down for There's been this bizarre side project that Peterson Games recently announced. The two-player version with standees called Cthulhu Wars Duel. This very, very small, very, very inexpensive two-player version. Weird. Yes. If they start getting in more factions in the standee version, you know, if they could offer a five-faction or a four-faction version for something along the lines of a sane purchase cost, then I think we might be talking about something. I don't have any interest in a two-player version, period. I don't think it's particularly good at that number, and I wouldn't want to, to 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 experience that, regardless of the component type. Anyway, all of this having been said, Cthulhu Wars is a delightful absurdity, and I agree with you that it's sort of a, in permanent rotation in our Troops of a Map all-stars, and uh, it's a shame about the cost, so I hope they, they try to flesh out this cheaper product well, line. Well, the other
1: thing that came up with it was just on Kickstarter lately, there was a one of those tablet sort of table things, and Cthulhu Wars was sort of, you know, trophy game that was going to be included with it. So that's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, because if you don't feel like spending 200 bucks for a game, you can instead pay 800 bucks for a new table, and then, you know, at that point, it seems economical. But then you have a table. It's true. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now,
1: on to the games we played this week. We played a game I am going to talk about one game we played online because all the other games that I played I had this whole little segment where it was games not worth mentioning, but we'll just skip that. <laughs> How appropriate. Let, let let me just say that they were all the games that I played online this week. There was this is I'm not going to be talking about any games that I played online except for this one, which is Australia by Martin
2: Wallace, published by Schmiel Games. I'm not sure how to say that publisher. It, it's distributed in North America by Stronghold, so that, it's, that seems it's, good. There's back. no question mark on the end, so my, my the way talking? I
1: said it, it was, there's, there is no question mark. It's, it's, a, it's a nice little game. I did enjoy it. I didn't like the combat system so much, which we're going to talk about later. But uh, overall, I, I sort of like... It's not a co-op game, but it feels like a co-op game. You can see when someone's being demolished unfairly or you or and you can you know pretend that you're coming to his rescue but you know it's just gonna be it's about to mash you afterwards (laughs) Because after he's dead then it's gonna start you know wasting your stuff so you can pretend that you're coming to the rescue and it's a perfectly nice game and it flowed along kind of brutally online as most online games do but i think it wasn't too too bad comparatively right if you compare how long it takes to play all the other games and this one fell into the same category
2: i was dreading playing australia in part because of its implementation on Tabletop Simulator, and I've, I've made my feelings on Tabletop Simulator very well known. And Martin Wallace tends to design games that are, for lack of a better term, spiky. This is a term that I've heard described for a number of... Odd, protruding rules bits that don't seem to make much sense. And I like uh, a fair number of Martin Wallace games. Hit Zeroed is uncharacteristically simple, also prominently featuring a Z, although in that case it's about zombies, so it makes sense. I'm a big fan of Age of Industry, and I'm also a big fan of Byzantium, but even in those latter two games, there are, for example, actions that no sane person ever takes. And that's the kind of thing that you might expect from a Martin Wallace game, these odd rules bits that don't really quite fit. And this is kind of sort of a spiritual successor in theme terms to A Study in an Emerald, and I've tried to study an emerald several times over both editions, and I still hate the game in all its instantiations. It's a, And it's this weird mishmash of you build rails and farms, and then a Shoggoth might come and eat your farm. And
1: And you can't farm unless you've got a railroad going through the farm. Right. And only troops can only... they don't know how to drive cars, they only...
2: Well, that part I thought was kind of cool. The notion of having to have some sort of military infrastructure that dovetailed with your economic infrastructure, right? The rails are the thing that keep it all together because you can only deploy troops within range of your rail and you can only build farms along your rail route. So that part at least tied it all together in a way that I thought was reasonably satisfying. And I liked everything about it. I just couldn't take the game seriously because it became very clear about halfway through the game. And I don't know if this is representative. We've only played once. You would look over at Walker's massive economic structure. He's got farms all over the place coming out of his ears. And meanwhile, and this is entirely my fault, I had posted up closer to the big monsters. And so the monsters, the way they move is sometimes they can move up to two spaces every time unit. Whereas anything you do will probably take about a couple time units, and that's assuming you have the military forces necessary to kill them already, and the military infrastructure necessary to go after them already so every time you try to attack them, they burn two of your farms, and you can't rebuild them they're gone forever, meanwhile Walker is miles away (laughs) with his lovely farm network Sitting there saying, oh, that's a shame. You really should have won that. I, I'm pulling for you. Uh, it's, it's awful. Another margarita, please. <laughs> and it was just it was just patently clear that it wasn't necessarily a case of imbalanced strategies. I'm not going to say that military is a sucker's game. I will say that once you're trapped in the sucker's game, there's no real way out of it. It didn't really seem like there was any benefit to trying to change gears because why should I build more farms? They're just going to get burnt down anyway. So, alternatively, what I need to do is go further down this military path, so as to make my corner of the world safe. Meanwhile, every time I do that, Walker's just building more farms. And with that comes more points. Anyway, all of that having been said, I thought it was surprisingly enjoyable. For a Wallace game, it's remarkably simple and straightforward. I just don't really like... How easy it is once the monsters start predating on your infrastructure. How they're just going to keep doing that over and over and over again. I thought I thought of, I, I thought I saw a way out of it by taking the war to them, but that just accelerates the rate at which they spawn anyway. So careful. It, it's one of those uh, Catan issues where I lost during setup. Again, my fault. I mean, I'm not going to say that it, that 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 it's it's entirely arbitrary. It's just you know once the monsters start moving, they move real fast.
1: It's all being said. I may have ended with the most points, but history will write, Mark, how your military saved Australia. They won't write about how my farms fed the troops. <laughs> they'll they'll write about how your your military fought back the evil monsters that won the day.
2: I appreciate your condescending effort to make me feel better about the situation. There is one aspect of the combat system that I just want to flag right away. We're going to talk more about this later, obviously. But when your combat system is driven by a deck of cards, one of the key virtues of a deck of cards, or at least key differences of a deck of cards over a die, is that a deck of cards has a memory. And when we saw Louis, and this is in part Louis' fault because Louis requested that we play Australia, so blame him, went and he brought his military forces, which were reasonably extensive, against a zombie. I don't know how a Zeppelin is supposed to fight a zombie, but anyway, that's one of the things you can do in Australia. And he just could not pull a hit to save his life from this deck of cards. I had similar military units, and I too was within range of a zombie, and I said, hmm. So he just pulled all the misses, right? I guess that means there's a higher proportion of hits in the deck for me. Okay, and sure enough, the results were much, much better for me. So I'm not sure I'm in favor of using the deck in that way. Now, the deck regulates other things as well, like how frequently certain monsters will move. And in that sense, you do want to have a memory, because you want the monsters to move at a regularized pace. And there's this cool notion of Migo moving faster than Shoggoths, who move faster than zombies. All that part is great, and for that, you absolutely want a deck of cards. Combat system, not so much. Maybe two decks.
1: That would be the way. And that was... Australia by Martin
2: Wallace. Played more games of Underfalling Skies. After saving Montreal, I went off and I saved Mexico City. And then I went off and I saved Johannesburg. It's been great. I really enjoy the way the campaign system works because it's not so much a campaign. It's more just a question of, here's a whole bunch of scenarios. We're going to introduce them as binary choices one at a time. And the parameters that are introduced in an incredibly simple dice puzzle are very satisfying. It doesn't get baroque. It doesn't get particularly intricate. The special powers are not mind-blowing, and the scenario effects are not especially wild. But it's just the right level of diversity for what is at heart a very simple, very accessible, easy to set up, easy to tear down, which are great virtues in a solo game. And I'm really impressed with what CGE has done with what was already a solid system. Under Falling Skies has been a delight. It is marvelously economical. A great entry point, as I said before, for people who are interested in getting into solo gaming. And I think it's, you know, the right game at the right time. Have you tried Under Falling Skies yet, Walker? Not yet. I that is ha- a shame. I have it, and I just haven't had time to do it. It will be soon. Under Falling Skies is by Tomasz Ulish and published recently by Czech Games Edition. But if you're not interested in going out and buying a game, and quite frankly, who is? The- buying a game sounds like a sucker's gambit. The nine-card print-and-play version will already give you a marvelous taste of the system. And then you can consider whether or not you want to buy the retail version. But again, as I say, the retail version offers a tremendous degree of variety to the core system. Under Falling Skies is a very clever, very, very interesting little puzzle, and I highly recommend it.
1: And then you and I got to play a game called The King is Dead. It is a three-player game only by Pierre Sylvester, published by Offspring Games. And what this game does is everyone has a set deck and they're all the same. And there are cards that will move cubes around a map or place more cubes on the map in various ways. And then once you do that, you remove a cube from anywhere on the map. And what you're trying to do is get area majority in certain areas and control a certain number of cubes. So at the end of the day you have the majority of a certain color of cube that has won the most areas
2: on the map. Which is really hard, because in order to get support in that given faction, you are weakening their ability to win subsequent area majority contests. That's
1: right, yeah. Once they win, those cubes are locked in, or they're just removed, I guess, so they're not on the board anymore, so you're sort of depleting, you know, the the reserve. So you want to try to, if you, if you actually are going for a particular color to win, you want to do so... By using the least amount of cubes. It does get, I think, a little wonky right at the end. And I don't think there's any way to fix that. Because I think with seasoned gamers, it's all going to be fairly neutral, right? Unless you have someone that really knows the system and is fully very far ahead, then there's no way to be in a king making position. If you have people that know the game equally, I think it's always going to end very, very close where the person that goes last can either make a move to win or is probably going to make a move that's going to make somebody else win.
2: Well, it's interesting you say that because this is the second edition of The King is Dead. It's worth noting that in this version, there is a variant whereby people's decks are not identical. You swap out three of the cards from the decks with random cards from a ploys deck. We didn't do it. We didn't play it that way, primarily because the original design, which I played originally as uh, King of Siam, uh, published by Histogame several years ago, is a marvel of simplicity and a marvel of minimalism. And so I'm generally suspicious of any attempts to take games like that and start adding in asymmetry or weirdnesses. And the game is already strange in that in The King is Dead or King of Siam or whichever version you're playing, tempo is all important because you don't have to play every round. You probably shouldn't play every round. And if you overcommit at the start, it'll be very, very difficult to win. But if you wait too long to make your move, it's also going to be very difficult to win. And that's what happened to me. I, I waited too long and Walker and Huey expended a lot of, of, of energy early on, and I figured, ah, well, I'll, I'll try to figure out a way to make it shake out at the end, and I couldn't. And this is one of the, the strange differences between the King is Dead 1st edition and the King is Dead 2nd edition. In the 1st edition, they had preserved a rule from the King of Siam which said, you cannot play the last card of the game unless it causes you to win. This was the anti king making rule. Everyone's got eight cards, you play them at different rates, so if you're sitting on holding the last card... You can only play it if it'll make you win. And I was in a position where I had the only card left. I could either play it and cause Huey to win or not play it and let Walker win. There was no way I could win. And I remembered the earlier version that said that there was the no king making rule. I looked over the rulebook several times and then I confirmed it later. It's gone now for reasons passing understanding. So at that point, I'm left with, without solid intuitions what to do except the inherited ones from previous editions. So I effectively said I pass, letting Walker win, because that felt more clean. But if you didn't have that vestigial memory of a previous rule, I don't know how you'd do it. I'm not sure I want to try the variants. I've I've always enjoyed the work of Pear Sylvester, who's done these games, They're fascinatingly bizarre, and if you've heard us talk about Leo Colomini's designs, particularly things like Carolus Magnus, or some of his other some of the other stranger designs in that era, such as the Bridge of Shangri La, it it feels a lot like that. In that, it is very minimalistic. It's very no luck. You look at the board, you figure, how am I supposed to do anything? Every play I make is stupid, and it's just really hard to make your way in the world. And I find that fascinating every once in a while. It's a very, very delicately balanced situation. I agree with Walker that probably it is best for players of equal skill levels. I don't necessarily share your misgivings about overcommitment early, because after all, it worked for you. You ran the table for the first few rounds, and Huey and I were just watching you do that, figuring we'd reverse it. And Huey made a strong play near the middle, but he wasn't able to overcome your inherited advantage. So it's all about knowing when to make those those forays. And But it's one of those designs that I respect more than I enjoy. I'll happily play it, and I find it intriguing from a design perspective.
1: Yeah, I love the card play, the fact that everyone's got the same cards and the same number, and you can sort of pass and come back in and sort of let other people change the board and, you know, realize that, well, there's no way I'm going to win that anyway, so I'll let those guys play that out and then save my cards for other places. I love that kind of back and forth.
2: Absolutely. And, and I don't think, just to reiterate, I don't think that the formula would be improved by surprise card plays. I really like the fact that it's a question of, okay, I know you've already committed that card. I know it's not going to come up again. What can I do with this given situation? And even in the no luck instantiation, no luck after the setup, there are random cubes to start the game, but after that, there's absolutely no randomness in the game whatsoever. I don't think that hidden information and, and strange setups would benefit the design. That having been said, I haven't tried it, and if, if people are interested in trying it, I will. There's also the four-player version, which is in teams. I played that with the King is Dead version. I, I don't find it as good, so it's pretty much just a, a, a three-player interesting puzzle, which is which is definitely a niche. And as I say, I respect it more than I enjoy it. Well, I'm wondering
1: if we could, the first time we try it would do it open-handed or like know which cards are going to be different. And maybe, I see. maybe that would offset your misgivings?
2: Possibly. I will say that the new version by Osprey is very beautiful. The board has uh, spot UV coating in a very, very attractive way. I mean, as we've been on record as saying, we don't care when it's on the box, but when it's it's used judiciously on the board, it can be quite visually appealing. I just don't know why they got rid of the no kingmaking rule. And, And that further makes me less keen on trying any of the changes in the second edition because it really does look like Pear Sylvester gave them this beautifully minimalistic thing. And then a couple of people who, not to disparage their work, didn't quite understand what they were messing with, started tinkering around the edges, so. That is The King is Dead by Offspring Games. Played Jetpack Joyride Deluxe Edition. This is one of the few mobile games that I've ever really played. The old half-brick Jetpack Joyride game. I like, uh, I have a number of Android handheld design devices that are meant primarily for retro gaming, primarily the Neo Geo, but I always liked to play Jetpack Joyride, starring Barry Pe- Steakfries and his suit with the sleeves ripped off. And Jetpack Joyride is a real time competitive polyomino game. We have the uh, special deluxe edition because we are VIPs, Walker. Ooh. Of course. Well, it has neat little things like the vehicles, and the vehicles had such charm in the uh, mobile game, and so I quite like that. When I first introduced the game and explained that it was a real-time game, Huey responded with what I think could best be described as stank face. Yes, that, or, or I thought maybe he had
1: regurgitated a lemon. I'm, it was one of those
2: two. <laughs> Possibly both. Possibly both. But even he was charmed by the design. I really like Jetpack Joyride. We we t- tend to find Polyomino games have a floor of charmingness. There's only so bad they can get, unless they're. I- I've yet to encounter a truly terrible one. I'm sure they exist. But Jetpack Joyride is a wonderful little spatial puzzle, even for somebody who doesn't like spatial puzzles. Primarily because you've got these additional missions that you're trying to satisfy. It it gives me a a, a tiny, tiny little vibe akin to Galaxy Trucker. Because the way I play Galaxy Trucker is I always play uh, build my ships to spec. A lot of people just build nice ships that are well-rounded and don't have exposed edges. I don't build ships that way in Galaxy Trucker. I look at the available threats and I make a very, very simple heuristic. Ah, I need lots of guns. Okay, and then I build a ship that is specialized to try to defeat the enemies that are coming for us. There's there's threats? Yeah, exactly. And then there are people like Walker who just don't pay attention to threats and just build the ship. It it Look, different strategies for different people. In Jetpack Joyride, you have these specific missions, like, for example, don't run over any scientists, or hit the ceiling and the floor in the same quadrant, or things like that. And at that point, that's enough of a tactical direction that I feel like I'm less doing a pure spatial puzzle and more just trying to find an efficient route through this little place while snapping up coins. It's very, very small, very quick. Very easy to teach, very accessible, very visually appealing. I'm a fan of Jetpack Joy, right? Yeah, I'd play it any time.
1: Like you say, all of those points are true. Doesn't take much time. You you know you you have four sectors you you blast through, and then when you've done that, you hand your four sectors to the next player, so everyone gets a chance to try everyone's maze. So it's nice and equal, and super fun. And it can overcome stank face. It can. It did. It did. They should put that on the box. It's true. Overcame the stank face. Absolutely. Jetpack Joyride. We also played... Oh my God, Mark. I played a GMT game. Can you believe it? <laughs> I was there. You were there. You taught. It's called... Well, it's Apocalypse Road. And we all know I hate a post-apocalyptic themes. Absolutely. This is based off of two other GMT games.
2: Yes, Thunder Alley and Grand Prix, both by Jeff Horger and Carla Horger, who are the designers of Apocalypse Road.
1: Thunder Alley is the game we played before our, our local big convention. It's sort of like the start-out game, and we all kind of very much like it. So it's one of these things where you create these weird chains of cars, and so you have to try to stay with the pack. And if you break away from the pack, and you try to get all of your cars across the finish line. And Apocalypse Road covers the
2: same sort of theme here. Except that now you get to shoot at each other. So, this was a review copy sent to us by GMT. I was curious about it primarily because I really like Jeff Horger as a designer. His first published design was Manoeuvre by GMT. And sorry, this is not me being pretentious. It's actually Maneuvre, it's Maneuver spelt in the Frenchy way. Oh. With all those extra letters in there and the the, the vowels s- s- smashed sprinkling in A sprinkling of yeah. je ne sais quoi. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I don't have to speak French on the on, on the podcast, Walker. That's my brand. Sorry. <laughs> but I didn't like Thunder Alley because, despite the fact that the card play is very clever, and it's all about trying to, you know, maximize your advantage, despite the fact that a lot of your movement will help other people behind you, because, you know, in stock cars there's drafting. I, all I know about NASCAR I learned from Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Exactly.
1: It was my favorite documentary. Magic Maze is very much like uh, a stock car race. It's You move, you turn right. <laughs> <laughs> turn right, turn
2: right, turn right. Wow. Turn right. All right. At any rate, <laughs> but the the primary objection I had to Thunder Alley, and one of the reasons why I do not participate in the inaugural Thunder Alley run, is I just find the game, like almost all racing games, way too long. And for some reason, that just kills any appeal that a racing game has for me. It's supposed to be about speed, and so if I'm sitting there for hours and hours shuffling these cars around, that's really going to sap any enthusiasm I have for it. And I was hoping that based on a different scoring system and the possibility of death and carnage would accelerate the game. In that respect, Apocalypse Road was an absolute design success. We played with four new players Setup Rules Explanation Teardown took about two hours, which is much, much less time than any game of Thunder Alley I've ever seen at, at comparable sizes. And cool things were happening. People got blowed up. There was lots of ramming, the, the you know opportunistic weapons fire, strange events that caused damage to random people. It was one of those games where, kind of like Australia, after the first round, it became clear that I shouldn't be taking this very seriously.
1: Yeah, there's a huge decision space there because you have this hand of cards that are going to move the cars in all sorts of different ways, and there's also sort of the ambulance chasing. Right, you can look around (laughs) the board and you can see who's about to die because it's it is unfortunately the last hit that matters in this game. So you sort of look around the board and see who's kind of weak, and so that makes your decision. You know, am I going to move this car so I can try to do a shot, or am I going to make this move that's going to advance my cars all together, or type like you know, I mean, there's lots there.
2: There was also the possibility of you deliberately moving a car in a reckless way so that the car would die on your turn and therefore deny anyone else the point. That was neat. The weapon system and the armor system work together in a rather interesting way. Actually, more on this later when we talk about combat systems, in that the, a car's defense value will both determine how often it is to be hit and how much damage it's apt to take, but all of it with no modifiers whatsoever. Long story short, a car has a defense value between 1, 2, and 3. And you need to pull a weapons card every time you fire. And the weapons card will have a value on it that will determine whether you hit. It'll say 0 through 3. And the cards cards with a hit value, a high hit value, do less damage. Logic being, if you're a card that's only going to be hit by higher attack values, when you are hit, you will take less damage. And it works out very, very well. I was very pleased with that. I was less pleased with the capricious influence of events. Some events just reliably hit whoever's turn it is. And that's fine, because the events trigger off of very strong movement cards. If your movement card gives you a plus three to your movement, it probably won't give you an event. If it gives you a plus six, it'll probably be an event, and if that event says take two damage at the end of your movement, well then, you ask for it. But on the other hand, if you pl- if you pull the event that says, you know, deal four damage to some other schmo who happens to be elsewhere, that started to feel a little bit more capricious and arbitrary. So, What I'm getting at is that you take the excellent card play of Thunder Alley and you marry it to a somewhat capricious, somewhat arbitrary, difficult-to-take-too-seriously, madcap, everyone-against-everyone-else, free-for-all, and it's very, very fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I can't take it seriously. I would contrast it a little bit, very different game, with Black Rose Wars. Because, again, Black Rose Wars was the first kind of free-for-all, things happening all over the place, fireballs going off and traps being triggered, where I could point to it and say, this actually feels more like a game. This feels incredibly wild, but less capricious and less arbitrary than lots of other games of its ilk. Whereas Apocalypse Road is very, very proud with, eh, whoever dealt the killing blow gets the point. Did you do one damage or five damage? I don't care. You happen to be there. You get the point. Oh, this event says you spin out. Ha ha. And like, again, I was there laughing. It was, it was, it was thoroughly enjoyable. Just not what you would necessarily call a balanced or thoroughly transparent experience.
1: And not, not very much from the, you know, the usual GMT output.
2: That's for sure. Yes, for many years, amongst you know the serious consumers, the one who would go to all the the wargame conventions and such, the 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 Hex Encounter wargamers, one of the old standbys was zombies, the one with many exclamation points for their beer and pretzels games. I never understood why, because that's a terrible, terrible. It really <laughs> is. I
1: ha- I own that game. It's really bad. It's I, really exclamation. Expo- kind, of kind of embarrassed that I own
2: it. Yeah. And war gamers are often looking for a light thing to do on the side, a comparatively shorter thing, a multiplayer thing that you can play with all of your friends after spending eight hours playing the first half of your game of Unconditional Surrender with one other person at the convention. And I think that Apocalypse Road should definitely be your candidate because there's there's still clever card play and lots of wild things happening, but it's still infinitely more deterministic and actually shorter than a big fat game of zombies. So there's there's a lot to recommend it, and I would happily play it again. It's not necessarily my 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 core demo because it's it's similar in theme to Gaslands. I'd rather play Gaslands and Jeff Horger's still got that that excellent card play system. Interesting note, he designed a fantasy version of Manoeuvre instead of Napoleonics. It was fantasy version. It was called Fury. So clearly if you were des- going to design a racing game in that universe, it would be called Fury Road. Of course
1: it would cough groan Mark, we played Marvel United again, and I think we've got everything that we can out of Marvel United from what we own at this moment. It's pretty pretty well... Best choice scenario, we think. You know, you have a card. This is obviously the best card to play. I'm going to play it. You do what it does. Very simplistic. Very much a game for the season we're in now. You bring it to your your family get-togethers, and the little kids will love this game as superheroes. Very easy to teach. Very easy to play. You always feel like you're doing something, even though it's obvious what you're going to be doing. And we're looking forward to seeing the other stuff that came in the Kickstarter that hopefully will give it a little bit more depth we shall see.
2: A listener was actually talking about how useful they find it to get recommendations for games that might work well for children, even though they're not children's games, because children's games are this massive universe that we only rarely brush up against, usually in the context of dexterity. And I agree with you. In Marvel United, there's so little text on most of the cards that I think that even very young children might be able to get behind it. And the pictures are very chibi and colorful, and so if they have any enthusiasm for superheroes at all, and that my understanding is that superheroes are kind of in. Marvel United might be a good candidate for the kind of game that an adult could play with a child and not lose their mind over it. Either the child losing their mind because it's going too slowly, or the adult losing their mind because it's too simplistic. That having been said... It's pretty darn simple. And it falls prey to the same problem that I identified with N- Nadavalier. Although Nadavalier, I would happily play again and is a great game. Marvel United gets less interesting as the game goes on. Because at the start of the game, you have any, we- any uh, one of three ways to counteract the villain's plans. And an open board full of things to do. Now, they're not particularly interesting or earth-shattering things, but at least you have these options available. Gradually, these get winnowed down. And as this gets winnowed down, two things happen. Number one, you're only looking for certain kinds of symbols on your cards. You don't care about the stars anymore. You just want the punches and the movement. And so everyone's looking around saying, just play as many punches and moves as you can and go forth and and do that thing. And that's that's less interesting. You're not trading off one priority against another. And the other problem is, the villain keeps activating... And every time the villain activates, the villain may or may not move. And you just spend a lot of your time just chasing the villain around the map. Playing duck duck goose. Yeah. It's really frustrating and obnoxious <laughs> because the end game, usually, so far, with the villains that we have, and this again is why I'm, I'm with you, and I want to see what other things could be done with this core system, because the bones are there. Interesting things could happen. Yes. Is you're just trying to run down and punch the villain real hard. And the villain just moves arbitrarily. And so you naturally, in, in if you're playing more than two players, you just start to spread out and someone will be close to the villain. And it's like, okay, well, I'll play this card to give you punches. It's like, all right, I'll chase them down. Oh, no, villain's gone now. Whee! Got to haul myself off to the other side of the map. So <laughs> I agree with you that I think we've gotten all that we can out of Marvel United for now. Uh, but I, I maintain foolishly optimistically that kind of interested in what the expansions might bring i look forward to being disappointed and that is marvel united we both got to play gaia project you were nice enough to allow me to
1: play it <laughs> this is the sort of the afterthought after Terra mystic came out they brought a gaia <laughs> project sort of put a sci-fi theme on a fantasy theme and cleaned up sort of like went with a bunch of rule changes that they made to Teramiska and more rule changes they want to implement it. And they just brought out this new game instead. They, they claimed it was more balanced, but you know, if you go into the deep, in the deep web, apparently it's not so much (laughs) that I, I don't play it enough to make it, to, to make it any different. So I had a great time playing Gaia project, Mark,
2: I've been saying for, I think, a little over a year now that I wanted to return to Gaia Project, see it again with with fresh eyes. And I'm glad we did, and I'm thankful that you walked me through it again, because it's it's a little daunting. There are lots of subsystems. It is very much what you would call a head-down game. This is sort of just re-encapsulate our review. We reviewed it years ago, shortly after it came out. And I've always felt like I should like Gaia Project more than I do. On paper, it's very much my kind of game. But at the end of the day, it's just a little bit too much in terms of head-down managing systems, eking out that last little source of ore. It's like, well, if I convert this to that other thing and I activate this other side action and then I manipulate the special ability that I have, I can get that one more ore and that means I get to put out one more of these boring little buildings out on the map. And... There are a number of those systems I quite enjoy. Cycling power in particular, which is more or less unchanged from Terra Mystica, I, I think is quite clever and quite neat, and I like managing that. And some of the other subsystems I could take or leave, and then some of them I just find obnoxious. And then at a certain point, once you start getting into the, well, I have these three leftover green cubes, so I'm going to activate this thing for seven marginal points, I, I just check out. That At that point, I'm like, eh, a little too much for a little too little.
1: Yeah, Unfortunately, the player interaction just falls back on basic worker placement. I got to that place before you did. Yeah. Which is so unfortunate with a game with so, so much complexity and decision space and cool combos that at the end of the day, the player interaction, just like I said, falls back to, I took that planet, I took that action before you could.
2: Compare this to a game like Barrage. Where if I build a bu- because at the end of the day one of my and this sounds absurd one of my objections to Gaia Project is that it's just all about putting up these buildings just slapping down mines and science academies and and and, and stuff like that and there are lots of euros from the very very simple uh, simple end like something like my city for example all the way to the slightly more in depth things like I don't know antiquity by splatter that are fundamentally about slapping up buildings fundamentally at the end of the day with other extraneous stuff on top but there's something about Gaia Project that just makes it feel so unsatisfying to me and this is very much a a sort of a, a an intuitive sort of gut reaction I just don't feel like I'm doing very much if you compare the results of slapping down a building in Barrage to slapping down a building in Gaia Project in Barrage if I build a dam suddenly everyone else at the table might be an uproar because I've changed the dynamics of the entire water table for everybody else. And it influences how you're going to build. It influences how you're going to manipulate power. It influences what action you need to take next and a whole bunch of other things. And it's just little details like that at the end of the day that make me appreciate splatter games, games like Barrage, Even other games where there's not more player interaction, but at least the subsystems feel more satisfying. I get to kill a whale in A Feast for Odin. I mean, I'm not going to be having more substantive player interaction with you playing Feast for Odin than I am with Gaia Project. But at least I get to, you know, have a sense of having done something kind of interesting. And personally, despite the fact that I love sci-fi, I love a lot of the lore, I love the, the, the theory behind a lot of the asymmetry in Gaia Project. It just doesn't incite any degree of wonder or excitement for me. And, uh, again, I was left a little disappointed, partially because I keep feeling I should like Gaia Project more. It's very solid. All the subsystems are there. And they kind of even hang together well, which is a minor miracle. When you've got that many subsystems going on and that many resources and that many different rules, and it's like, okay, and don't forget about federations, and don't forget about text and don't forget about advanced techs, and don't forget about all all these other things. The fact that it works at all in a vaguely cohesive way is a minor triumph. Not really for me, though. It is unfortunate.
1: And I've been playing Terra Mystica a lot online because there's no Gaia Project implementation. And instead of having this very interesting tech track where you get, you know, range and all sorts of stuff, they have this like this cult track which literally does nothing. And 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 after playing Gaia Project, now coming back to taking my Terra Mystica turns, it's just so much more painful.
2: I I do prefer Gaia Project to Terra Mystica. I do think that the design work has was very, very impressive in terms of taking the same fundamental formula and making it superior. I even find that there's more player interaction in Gaia Project than there is in Terra Mystica precisely because of the way the planets work and the the way space works. It's the way space works. It's the way space works. It's the way space works, Walker. But I I just, I can't get there. And it's a shame there's no online implementation of Gaia Project. I agree with you. If for no other reason than then we would quickly get to the mountain of data we have on Terra Mystica about how imbalanced the various factions are and various, you know, various auction kludges that people have introduced to fix the perceived imbalance. That's true. And that's Gaia Project. And, oh, here we go, Mark. This is going to be good. Designed by... I think it's Jens Droegemuller and Helga Ostertag. Ah, see. I'm getting, I'm sure I'm getting the vowels wrong. And finally, from me, I got to play terraforming
1: Mars, but like real on the table physically me and Dewey got it out and uh played a nice long game had a few of the expansions, so we had to but we didn't play with any we played with the the first expansion, but not the second expansion, but the second expansion had some cards yeah so just I, just the new cards so every so stuff, often yeah. yeah we had to throw some cards to the side <laughs> because they made no sense, but there are some cards in that. That were just normal cards. Anyway, long story short, I had a great time playing Terraforming Mars. We actually ran out of I ran out of player cubes because I tried once again. I tried like a strategy that I never played before, which I usually do in Terraforming Mars. I went like almost all blue cards, so I was the very annoying player that you know took the turn you know five times longer than the other player. This is different from normal. Oh, James shut I- it. <laughs> so I won't go too much into Terraforming Mars, because it is more of an experience for me than an actual game, designed by Jacob Freselius, published
2: by Fricks Games. And those are the games that we played this week. You know, Walker, I'm sincerely glad that you got a chance to play a couple of games that you really like and that I don't, because so often we play pretty much all of our games together. It's it's good to find these opportunities. Yeah, because it's funny, actually, I didn't think of it until the second
1: both those games sort of have uh, tricked out player boards so I was happy to finally get them to the table like I didn't you know you go through the effort of doing of making these things fancy and then they sit on your shelf so it's nice to actually get them played
2: well this is one of the great casualties of the COVID era right I mean we are not suffering much here in our particular instance, I, I, I released a, a full editorial about this, about, you know, the, the big COVID update, about how it's been affecting so very wrong about games. Long story short, not a whole heck of a lot, especially when compared to other people who haven't played a game since March or even earlier. But one of the virtues of being able to have open games nights is Walker can throw a game in his bag that he knows that I hate, or I can throw a game in my bag that I know that Walker hates and find other people to play with it.
1: <laughs> this is all true. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. People say they can't believe we didn't talk about X sometimes, Mark. But let me remind you that we only bring up things that are actually interesting. <laughs> and it's the only thing I have before Mark gives you his one piece is that I want to apologize for hyping up Board Game Arena's advent calendar only for those people who are sort of like in their beta world already. I was already in their beta world. I thought these were going to be new games that are coming out, but it's just all the beta games that I've already been playing coming out to full release, which is pretty well. So I don't want to take away from it. It is it is a great thing, but I'm not as excited as I was in the first place.
2: I think it's they're just a victim of their own success. Their beta and alpha games are pretty solid. Yes. And so people just play a lot of them. Exactly. And so the notion that they they were going to have a new release every day in December... You thought they were going to be, you know, new releases rather than just transferring from beta into full release. Exactly. I feel for you. I have checked in a couple times over the course of the month to see what games they have released. I'm like, wait, Walker's talked about all of these. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That. So nothing new to report from Board Game Arena. An interesting bit of news. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay attention to how this develops. This is, this is early days yet. Apparently, Everdell, the publishers of Everdell, Starling Games, and Tabletop Tycoon Games, have been sending cease and desist letters to sellers on Etsy. For blinged out custom components for Everdell. Now, this anybody who's been to Etsy in the board gaming hobbyist space knows that you can get lovely little doodads for this game, that game, or the other game. Very much like Thingiverse, you know, you go and you find all these accessories that that that, that are available. I, for one, have purchased a number of things on a. Uh, uh, on Etsy. Uh, for example, beautifully sculpted multicolor plastic components replace all the chits in Root, as an example. I've got all these lovely buildings that, that I got from Etsy. And apparently, the line that Starling Games and Tabletop Tycoon Games are taking is that you're free to sell accessories for Everdell on Etsy, but you cannot say Everdell, and you cannot in any of your pictures of the product show any components of the actual game. So I assume, therefore, you'd have to say woodland game accessory things without showing what it accessorizes. Now,
1: I think it's fantastic when people live in in an alternate reality to the world that we live in.
2: (laughs) I have spoken with a couple of lawyers, actually, not in the aegis of legal advice, but from what I've perceived... From my initial discussions, as I said, this is a developing story, they don't really have much of a leg to stand on because there is such a thing as fair use of a trademarked term. Everdell is trademarked. Anybody that tried to actually use the Everdell trademark on their own goods, that would obviously be problematic. But you're allowed to use trademark terms when selling your own stuff compatible with. That's entirely fine. And if you say this is not an official product, not sanctioned by the publisher, but compatible with the game Everdell, the consensus appears to be that that's totally okay. But not according to the publishers, who, as I say, have been sending uh, cease and desist orders to sellers on Etsy. I think this is unfortunate. I think this is vaguely reminiscent of the overreactions of Games Workshop, of the early aughts when they sent cease and desist letters like crazy to everybody. And honestly... I mean, there might be some market interest here. Maybe the logic is we want to be able to sell accessories to our games, and if our customers are off buying accessories from other people, that reduces the market for people to buy our accessories. Maybe that's true. It's not a good look. And it's not necessarily something that's going to endear you to a fan base. And I I also think it's legally dubious. And so under under all that context... Should you ask for people to make more clear that this is not a sanctioned product? Absolutely. If people are using the name of the game on some of the stuff they're selling, which a couple people have done, should you ask them to stop? Absolutely. I think that's perfectly reasonable. But this whole line that we're concerned that clients are going to get confused and that there's going to be uncertainty in the marketplace, it's Etsy. Has anyone in the history of ever thought they bought an official anything on Etsy? I don't think so. So it comes off as either disingenuous at worst or ignorant at best. I'm going to be paying attention to how this develops. I'm
1: going to have to do some shopping on Etsy now for for woodland creatures. (laughs) Absolutely. For a game I don't own anymore. Sorry for the lack of news. This is just the type of the season. It's right near the end of the year, so people aren't putting out too much stuff because they want to blast it all out so they can get it in the 2021 category. So hopefully next week we have some more exciting things to talk about. And that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to the topic of the week, which is combat systems. I personally am going to go for the ED-209. It is my personally favorite combat system. Ooh, solid choice. Solid choice, right? Solid choice. Okay, but seriously, though, combat systems, before we go any further, they can all be broken down into, I need something to win. So... Of course, there's going to be all sorts of comments that, well, this is just the same as that, and that's
2: the same as this with Dex. We, I understand that this is just how we happen to break it down. I agree entirely. At the end of the day, I'm sympathetic to the line of analysis that says everything is fundamentally an auction, and that all combat systems especially are basically just variations on an auction. Sometimes this is more plausible than others, and sometimes you really have to push it. But there is one kind of counterexample. That I think we can just discuss briefly, which is probably one of my favorite ways to resolve combat, and that's dexterity. Well, that you took my, the end apart. Oh, my, I'm
1: sorry. That's okay. I, at the end, I have my, my my two favorite types of of combat systems, and that is dexterity and and the combat tower, the the cube tower.
2: Oh, the cube tower. Okay. Well, we can we can talk about the cube tower absolutely. Because what about the cube tower? Do you like better than say just a, a, any other form of randomization? It's just it's just this exciting. And silly thing, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it's like you know,
1: you there's about you know four or five combats where none of your cubes come out, and then suddenly you know you drop four cubes in, and eight of your cubes come out. It's yes. just, it's just one of these. It's like were you guys hiding in the woods or something? Like, <laughs> when...
2: yeah. Well, we I, I talked before about how cards have memory, whereas dice don't. The cube tower also has a memory. I found it so disappointing that the first game that used the cube tower was Zeichen des Kreuzes, which was this game about the Crusades. And I, I, I kind of enjoyed it, but the problem was the cube tower was actually fighting against what made sense. Like, if I fought a battle and all my cubes stayed up in the tower, and then you fought a battle and my cubes came out, I didn't benefit in that game. So it was absurd. It was it was, it was was just doubling down on this notion that my failures redounded to your success. So when it was used in Wallenstein and Shogun, that made a whole lot more sense because if you did really badly in a combat, you would get some benefit again later on. Agreed.
1: Dexterity games like Catacombs and Flick Fleet where you – it's like a physical – you're actually flicking discs or flicking things at other people. And Seal
2: Team Flicks, of course. And Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters is is great because it combines both dexterity and just standard die rolling in one process. It's very true.
1: And I have this versus my other favorite thing, but we'll talk about that at the end. Back up to the top, let's start with no-luck systems. So some no-luck systems are pretty well... Uh when the sides face off, you remove like one shit from each side, right? And yes. there's games like Divine Right or Imperial that do this, you simply combat begins. I remove one piece from each side. Is there still pieces there? One piece from each side until there's only Entirely one. Entirely
2: attritional. Or the way that civilization does it, I quite like the way civilization does it. It is also purely attritional, but it's not simultaneous. You remove chits one at a time but you start with the weaker faction so numerical superiority gives you an additional benefit yeah the, the back and forth is the next one yes yeah. so right
1: it's one so sometimes you can do it with initiative or the, the higher strength goes first and then you go back and forth until there's only one side
2: on that topic i just have a, a a very a very focused question for you because i find this controversy fascinating this is a somewhat of a sidebar so initiative should it go from high to low or low to high it should go from low to high Okay, so so initiative one goes first, and then I initiative think, two goes, and then just, initiative three. Just because three. it
1: makes it easier, right? Because usually it's usually okay. one first player or second player just makes it in sort of sequential order as sure. well.
2: Sure, it's just I people have very strong opinions. <laughs> I don't have a preference. I don't think. I just find it unfortunate that the world is divided, but they are very firmly divided. I don't think I really have. An
1: opinion, you mean, but if I had to choose... If you one, had to choose, okay. If I had to choose, like, otherwise, you know, there's just lots of games that, you know, you give modifiers, you know, plus 10 initiative, plus, you know, you start at 30 and, you know, you go to this ridiculous number, so whoever has the highest goes first type thing, you know, and that's fine as well, like, a, as long as it's very clear. All right, some more no-luck stuff. My units do as much damage. Sorry, my units do this much damage. So, and it could be versus a block or something, you know, it's just it's just straight up, this unit does X damage and there's no other, there's no dice rolling or anything else. Or it could be, you know, my unit does this, this much damage and my,
2: the opposing unit blocks this much. And is there any excess? So- it's weird. I normally find those systems very uninteresting. Like the Imperial and Antica combat systems work just fine because it's not primarily about winning battles. It's, it's more about, you know, the, all the economics going on behind it in both, in, in, in both games. The only game that does no luck combat that way that I find really interesting is actually Titan's Tactics, that weird skirmishy game where all damage is abstracted. It doesn't matter whether I hit unit A or unit B unless they have specific abilities like armor. And what saves it from my estimation is that all the abilities have to be powered by cards. And so again, there's this weird resourcey economic thing behind it that kind of saves it from being this kind of dull calculational exercise. Because I don't mind dull calculational games, but if, you know, if people are going to be fighting, I want to see some action. So other games that do this are Zeno shift
1: so straight up damage versus... And Neoshima Hex also does just straight damage versus... And then there's... I have more units.
2: But it, it's weird, but to, to say that Zeno Shift is an... Uh, under the category of no luck i think is a gross exa- oversimplification once the card is flipped up yeah, in actual a, combat it is a is, purely deterministic thing but the, yes. the over, but the overall combat sees a random influx of units coming at you it's true so that uh, maybe i'm just splitting hairs
1: it, that maybe that's the order of combat but the actual combat itself is anyway we can split hairs there later uh, the other one is i have more units than you when the fight actually starts so there's some games like that, like, say, Small World, right? It's very determined. There's no luck. I put more units in there, you lose, you get pushed out. Oh, so oh, right. The, so, like, I have more cubes in a certain area. I'm not sure, is El Grande like that? I'm well, you sure. don't,
2: I mean, you don't really fight El Grande in the same way. Like, when scoring happens, it's just pure
1: area yeah, well, majority. True, but you could sort of say, I don't know if it's the theme, is that there's a fight going on there. So Kind of, sort of, not yeah, really. Yeah, I don't know. Is that whoever has the most cubes? Theme in El Grande? What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> The next one I have is, I'm at the top of the war track when wartime starts. So games like that, I believe Nations has this, this sort of thing. Everyone's like fighting to go up this this war track, and then when there's a fight, whoever's higher on the war track will win.
2: Yeah, Through the Ages does the same thing. There's just this notion of accumulating military strength, and you're effectively just running up a track. Yeah.
1: That's all I have for no luck.
2: It's weird, though. I don't know... We this is starting to get into the notion of what people consider no luck to be, because all of these outputs that you're discussing are resolved deterministically, but only on the back end of a whole bunch of random stuff that went into the first place. For yes, example, for sure. if we're whether we're talking about uh, talking about nations or through the ages, for example, yes, the track itself is deterministic, and when you resolve the track, it's all deterministic. But that's after all these random cards came in depending on how they were introduced. When I think of a no-luck combat resolution system, I I think of something like Antica. I think of something like Imperial. I think of something like Titan's Tactics. And then there's the controversial middle ground, where some people consider this no luck and some people don't, the real-time simultaneous play versions, like the elaborated rock-paper-scissors game. like A great way to divide geeks above and beyond asking whether initiative should go from high to low or low to high, is to ask them whether rock, paper, scissors is deterministic. You're going to get a lot of people who swear up and down that it is, that that is a no-luck resolution system, and other people to say, well, because you don't know the outcome at the time you make your choice, it is therefore random. I don't think either of those positions is exactly right. I'm I'm, I'm comfortable with both those characterizations. So Age of
1: Mythology uses the rock, paper, scissors uh, combat system, where everyone puts a unit in their hand, and everyone owns up, and some units beat other units, and Blah, blah, blah.
2: Exactly. I'm thinking of games like Yomi. Yomi is purely just a series of rock, paper, scissors combat determinations. There's also a really cool game called Bushido Way of the Warrior that I haven't played in years and I should probably show you just because it's so bizarre. That has you commit forces, but in addition, you choose a tactic and the tactics work on a rock, paper, scissors mechanism and that's going to determine not necessarily the outcome, but it's going to determine the modifier. So it can be very consequential. Uh, Bushido isn't a no-luck version of Rock, Paper, Scissors because the tactics you get are pulled from a pool. But, yeah. Anyway, I just like flagging controversies and then not resolving them. Oh, that's the, how
1: we roll here on on the swag. All right. Next I have up is dice. Oh, my goodness. All sorts of stuff. It's a dice. huge, huge category. It is. All right. So, my first one is I need to hit a target number. Yes. So, this is like axes and allies. And sometimes the order matters. Why do I have that in two places? So sometimes the order matters. I think that's to do with the order of attack, which I have later on. So things like uh, Nexus Ops or Shogun, yes, where you're rolling certain units at certain times because they can kill before other units. And that leads to a very interesting dynamic where you sort of say, well, you know, well. My footmen haven't attacked yet, but I'll still kill them because they're cheaper or I'll, you know, I'll kill the more expensive unit because I have a chance that my footmen are going to attack. And this usually comes up when it's like ranged versus melee, right? All the ranged guys will shoot first and then the melee guys after. And you have to decide whether or not, you know, you're going to kill all your melee guys and not get a melee round or, you know, save some and try to kill the rest of his guys.
2: That's the classic dynamic of most block games like all the games from Columbia and Triumph and Tragedy from GMT. Oh, I should try Triumph, play Triumph and Tragedy again soon. Such a good game. The, the the interesting difference between a game like Axis and Allies or the block games is block games, typically your threshold to hit is determined by the attacking unit, whereas in Axis and Allies, it relies a little bit more on the thing you are attacking to determine whether or not you get hits. And then there's modifiers
1: that can be added to these. Light, and then the D&D is the biggest one for this. You know, you're rolling D20, and then you're adding all sorts of modifiers to it.
2: So I'd like to uh, go back to something you've expressed in the past. You've expressed a disdain for combat resolution mechanisms using D20s. Yes. I would like you to elaborate now on why you do not like them. Oh, it's just too big of a scale, in my opinion. But why, what difference does it make? All All that the D20 gives you is a greater degree of granularity for the modifiers. For example, if I take the same basic game structure... And I replace a, like, Axis and Allies, say. And so I replace uh, the Axis and Allies D6 system with a D20 system. All that that does is means that instead of dealing with clumps of modifiers of 16.6 repeating percent, I now have clumps of modifiers of 5%. Which means I can, in- I can That's nudge... That's too much, the top- Matt. See, so you've already lost uh, Okay. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right. So there's modifiers. And then I have the dice pool. So a unit would start off with so many dice to begin with, and they're going to lose some because of range, and they're going to lose some because of the armor that the person has. And then, you know, their morale is a little low. So they lose a little bit more dice, and then they're rolling negative dice.
2: And then this weird <laughs>
1: portal quite. opens up in the table. And no, you know no, 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 no.
2: Well, when done simply, this can lead to a very, very, very quick end very well-distributed set of combat results. My favorite game in this category is Claustrophobia. Your combat value is just the number of dice you roll, and if there are any modifiers to be applied, they are typically to gaining or losing dice in this style of game. And you're just trying to hit either a static threshold or a threshold based on whatever kind of unit you're attacking. Summoner Wars does this, too, where you just... You know, you're going to be rolling 3d6, and you're generally trying to hit a 3 or a 4, and you're going to inflict a number of hits. I really like those those uh, game systems. In uh, consims and other kind of war games, this tends to result in the buckets of dice system, like Here I Stand. You know, it's not uncommon when playing Here I Stand, if you're going to be trying a conversion attempt to be, you know, pitching 20d6 at any given time, just to, uh, you know, after all, all the modifiers shake out. I like buckets of dice. I like this this this, this simple pull system because for whatever reason, it is easier to track modifiers when it's adding or removing dice than it is about adding and removing to a target number.
1: Agreed. The next category I have is fancy dice. Ooh, fancy dice. The symbol that I roll on the dice is hit, or the symbol in the die if it's if I have it in the battle, it scores a hit.
2: Right. And sometimes you then get into slightly more elaborated systems where, by virtue of skills or equipment or unit abilities, you can start spending some of these symbols from a menu of special effects... My favorite game in this category is Aristea, where different units have different things called triggers, where you roll the custom dice, and this influences what kind of action you want to do with these people and when, and it influences who you might want to target, because your target can use these triggers. Sometimes it's done very, very simply, like in games like Descent or or Massive Darkness, where it's usually just, I have a weapon that lets me get an extra hit when I roll this symbol. It usually doesn't get too much fancier than that.
1: All the Command & Colors games do this. Battle lore, attack... Does it very nicely. Conquest of the Empire. Senji also has this some sort of roll, all the symbols. You get to divide them up and they all have special abilities that they can do as well.
2: Well, it determines who will help you, yes. Yes. Well, Senji is another example of a game of of a combat resolution that dovetails neatly with all the other game sub-mechanisms. One of the reasons why I think Senji is so brilliant is because all the pits, all the bits fit together really 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 well and the combat system only makes sense in the context of the diplomacy system
1: which is fantastic which is brilliant because you roll all these dice that have all the symbols of all the players and then if you roll you get to use your symbols as as strength and then if you have some symbols of someone that's your ally. You get to use those as well. But then I knew you were going to fight Mark, so I traded Mark, you know, his hostage to you, and now he can't. It's, it's just a fantastic system. Absolutely. So the next thing I have up in dice is exploding dice and how fantastic they are. Love I was going to
2: ask dice. you. This is one of the things that I wanted to ask. It's not that it's controversial. It's just that some people have very, very strong opinions on exploding dice. Sometimes it's bad. I really? Think, I think it's
1: uh, well, Bloodborne. Eric Lang's
2: Bloodborne, I think, had exploding dice, and I remember it being a little excessive? Well, some people are very, very pro-exploding dice. I am I could take or leave them, honestly. Uh, this uh, I first experienced them in, in modern gaming and Chaos in the Old World. All the Sadler modular deck systems, uh, Street Masters, Brook City, Ultra Quest, they all use them. And honestly, one of the things that I don't like about exploding dice is that of the methods of obscuring a quick mental calculation of, of your odds of success... It's the one that's the most component intensive and sometimes it just makes things take too long. Like, I First of all, I hate running out of dice. I'm not the kind of person who's always going to buy the extra dice pack and if you have exploding dice, you're probably going to run out of dice more often than, than you would otherwise. And it just makes simple resolution. Sometimes you roll your dice. Okay, I got an explosion. Okay, I roll it again. Oh, I exploded again. Oh, I roll again. It makes me feel like I'm playing title blades and nobody wants that.
1: It's true. So this is still in the fancy dice category that we're doing this. All right. Next up is... Upgradable dice. Yes. So this is in like Siege of the Citadel or Doom, where you can play a card or have an ability that lets you go from white dice to red dice to black dice, which, you know, lets you score more hits, which makes you feel like you're doing something special, which is awesome.
2: Well, very much the title blades. You can upgrade the dice and title blades. And that was neat. Uh, Hellboy does that very, very neatly. That's how they handle modifiers. You're always rolling four dice in Hellboy, almost always, and the modifiers don't change your target number or anything like that. They just change the color of dice you're going to roll up or down. And it's one of the great things about Hellboy, and it makes resolution marvelously quick, and you still have going back to the discussion about exploding dice, yes, the virtue of exploding dice is you can get wildly successful results on rare occasions, and I can understand why in many contexts you would want your design to have that, but Hellboy just has this modifier die you always roll. This blue die is always tacked on top of whatever other dice you roll, and it can give you that opportunity for the wildly successful result without having to deal with things like exploding. I'm not anti-exploding dice. I just don't think it's always the best way to get that kind of result in whatever resolution you want.
1: And then I'm just going to throw combined arms in here in these, like, fancy dice. A lot of times this is where you get awarded for having combined arms in your unit, like if you have your artillery and your cavalry, your infantry, and you have all of these symbols working together, and then I like how games, you know, work that into the system.
2: Yeah, Helenica did that. You got more dice if you had combined arms. You weren't necessarily rewarded for having mass. You know, if you show up with eight hoplites, you're not going to do very well. But if you show up with one hoplite and one cavalry, you'll probably win a lot of fights. And Australia did that too. The, the combat resolution in Australia is you pull a card, you check whatever row of the thing you're fighting, and it's going to show some symbols. And if you happen to have that kind of unit there you will do some damage. And so you were, were rewarded for having a variety of different kind of units showing up in a game of Australia.
1: All right, and that's all I have for fancy dice.
2: Anything to add? <laughs> I... I... And then... oh, sorry. Does this include all custom dice, or...? Pretty well. Okay. I'm actually getting a little down on one of our favorite skirmish games, HeroScape. Uh, because I've seen now a whole bunch of combat resolutions, and in fact, almost all of the ones we've been discussing so far have been ones where the attacker rolls and then the defender does nothing. And I'm very much in favor of that now. The the model that Heroescape has, that Warhammer Underworlds has, uh, even the, the recent Funkoverse has, whereby both sides roll and you have to roll more hits than than the the defender rolls defense, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a little less keen on it precisely because number one, it explodes the realm of variance. It just means that a lot more results can happen. And sometimes it's really done, I think, in a kind of lazy way because at least in the context of Warhammer Underworlds and Heroescape, Hits are more prevalent than successes. So if I have an attack value of 3 and you have a defense value of 3, I'm probably going to hit you. Or at least that that's, that's a reasonable expectation. When we played Gatefall, I really like Gatefall and it's super charming. But you always use the same die and there are a lot of rolls where my attack value is the same as your defense value. We're both rolling and uh, nothing happens. Time after time after time. I much prefer the system like you have in Claustrophobia, like you have in in the, the more Thompsonian system, which I'll talk about in just a second, where as the attacker, I just roll and I'm trying to exceed a given value. And it's probably more a question of how many hits I'm going to have rather than whether or not I'm going to hit you at all. So at least there's a bias towards action. The game is going to move forward. The Thompsonian system is a bit of an exception, because I've now been playing so many games by David Thompson, and he really likes a combat system, whereby you're going to be rolling a certain number of dice, usually D10s, and if any of them match or exceed a target number, you will do a hit, no matter how many quote-unquote successes you get. He's done that in the States of Siege games, he's done that in For What Remains and I, I really like it. It's a, it's a really, really quick uh, resolution system and it's a good way to kind of make things proceed at a determinative pace, not a glacial pace. Things still happen. There's a bias for action, but you're never going to, you're probably not going to get more than one hit a, assigned to you at any given time. So it's not like you're going to be completely murdered out from nowhere.
1: Hey, yeah, you're, you're jumping ahead on me. I've got a success rolling for successes, uh, chapter, um, you're the only one who gets to decide the pace of yes. this? I just, yeah. Oh, I, that's how it always goes. I don't understand why you're surprised. All right. So that's the end of uh, Fancy Dice and uh, Target Number. Now we're doing uh, Beat Your Opponent's Roll. So these are games like Risk and stuff. They roll dice. You need to roll dice. And whoever gets the highest roll wins. I like the Risk. I, I fundamentally like the, the Risk system. It's, it's 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 a tried and tested
2: method. Yeah. Fast. Easy. Everyone knows it. Call it your high die. There's a on. there's a bias in favor of the attacker and a different bias in favor of the defender. It's kind of cool. Yeah.
1: And then there's the the complex dice rolling, right where you roll to hit, and then you're going to roll to wound, and oh, then boy. you're going to roll to see how many wounds you got, and then the opponent's going to roll to save against the the hit that you might have got if you rolled to wound, and
2: you wouldn't happen to be referencing any popular Games Workshop brands, would you? Never. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. think so. So lots and lots of
1: dice. It is a thing.
2: Yeah, and this goes back to my whole bias for action. I don't want the overwhelming preponderance of results from combat to be nothing happens. And that's what a lot of these systems encourage. There are ways to try to flatten the probability curve so that these wild results don't predominate. Like, I respect the fact that you want some units to be very sturdy and other units to be less so. I just think that there are better ways to do it than a five-part combat resolution uh, metric where overwhelmingly nothing happens.
1: And then my last part about dice, like you already talked about, successes. So successes to hit versus defense or... Uh, you roll a bunch of dice and depending on how many successes you get over the thing, you either do like one hit, like you said, which we more than prefer. Or there's other systems that are the difference of successes over someone's defenses. That how, that's how many wounds you're going to cause, which I don't like so much. Oh, yeah? And then there's a scale of success, which you've already touched on as well. So I rolled, uh, you know... I rolled 10 successes, so I would have got this if I got 5, I would have got this if I got 7, and I get this because I got 10. I like that system very much as well.
2: Yeah, they did that in level 7 Omega Protocol, yeah. where there were custom symbols, but it was a relatively flat probability curve. Most of the time, you were going to do one hit, and in some contexts, if you were doing a very powerful attack, and if you really, really spent a whole lot of modifiers and you overshot, you might do two. And that I thought was a, a pretty good balance in terms of an expected result, but also the possibility of something really, uh, uh, really successful happening. But let's go back to so you don't like the claustrophobia way of, of resolving combat. I've got five dice, and every die that's a three or higher will do a hit.
1: No, I prefer the the, the single the single wound. Mm. Why? Just because it's less wild, right? Because you know, just less more.
2: Well, I guess it's swingy. I guess it depends on what, how beefy your units are and how many hits they can take, right? In the, in a context of claustrophobia, where it, typically you might have a human attacking a group of three or, f- or more trogs at once, I think it works really well. If it were a smaller scale skirmish game where it was, you know, three units against three units, I would agree with you. That would probably be a little too wild, but I just like how quick and dirty it is. And it really helps to manage large crowds without getting bogged down in minutiae.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure in most circumstances it works, but sometimes it gets a little swingy.
2: And that's all I have on dice. Do you have anything else on dice? Well, I just want to give another shout-out to the really, really cool resolution systems in the Precinct Omega tabletop miniatures games, this being Horizon Wars and Horizon Wars Zero Dark, where your stat determines the number of dice you get to roll, and again, modifiers refer to the number of stats, uh, the number of dice you get to roll, usually. And then you... He likes D12s, but it could work with really pretty much any size of, of, of die, even your hated D20s. And then you try to get a certain number of successes, and you do that by joining the dice together. So, for example, if I roll a 4 and a 7, that's very different than if I'd rolled a 5, a 5, and a 1, because you join them up in little buckets. And so if you're trying to get uh, meet, meet a threshold of, of say, 2, you... Divvy up the device and uh, divvy up the dice. And it went even further in Horizon War Zero Dark, where every additional success past the first one or second or third one, case depending, let you do a bonus action. And so it was really just like a little dice game unto itself, uh, somewhat like another very, very different game, Vengeance, where every combat role was like a, a little mini game of trying to figure out how to maximize your results based on what you got. I, I really am a sucker for creative resolution mechanisms in the context of combat, and I have to say that both Vengeance and Zero Dark in different ways have been some of my favorites of the past few years.
1: All right, that's Dice. Now onto cards. We just played a couple of games, much like they were very similar, i.e. Australia and Apocalypse Road, where when you did combat, you drew off the top of the deck and it had multiple things, multi-use combat cards.
2: And it's weird, the memory part is where I, I, I don't like it. If it's a co-op game or a solo game, fine. Then the the fact that the, the cards have a memory is great. When you're playing a game like Combat Commander, where every player has their own deck, and therefore all the results will get smoothed out, but when it's a multiplayer competitive game where everyone's working off the same deck, and your bad pull means that my next pull is going to be better, not a fan.
1: Agreed. And then there's games that, where you have a set of combat cards, like Kemet. Or Game of Thrones, and so you have, you have this interesting, you know, mechanism where you know they've played certain cards, and you can sort of guess on what they're going to play.
2: This is where combat systems really are transparently a blind bid, because that is, that's what it is. It's a blind bid with your resources, in this case your resources are combat cards. I have heard you speak highly of specifically the, the combat resolution in Game of Thrones before. I was wondering if you would be willing to elaborate a little bit on what you like about it.
1: Oh, it's just its just very much like the Kemet game where everyone has a set of cards that will modify uh, uh, a diplomacy-type style combat where you know exactly what they have on the board and you can slightly modify it because they don't go very high. They go anywhere from 1 to 4, I believe, is the highest they go. And it also determines whether or not it's going to kill a unit Or not, right? Because normally they just push units around. Like in Diplomacy, I have higher strength, so you get pushed out. But then you might play a sword, or the other side might play a castle to stop the sword. It just gives a little more variance to it. And once you've played the card, it's out, and you have to cycle through your whole deck like you do in Kemet, then you get them all back again.
2: I prefer it in Kemet uh, as opposed to Game of Thrones, because at least in Kemet, everyone's working off the same set of cards, unless you've bought the power that gives you a different card. In... Game of Thrones, I always felt like I had to relearn everyone's deck every time I got into a fight with everybody. And honestly, the the I didn't feel like the swords and castles were frequent enough. Like, they, they tended to be in the minority of cards rather than the majority of cards like they were in Kemet. I don't know. Then then you get into even more deterministic, less variegated card systems like Lord of the Rings of the Confrontation or Dungeon Twister. I, I I honestly don't know why, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to elaborate. I generally don't like... This sort of combat system where everybody's got a bit full of cards and they need a blind bid for them. I don't know what it is. It's probably my own tendency to overcommit and play the cards so high that I necessarily will win. It's probably similar to why I don't really like the combat resolution system of Scythe, which is also a blind bid, although not with cards there. It's about points that you've accumulated. Yeah, I've got a list here. There's also Rex and or Dune
1: that also has yes. a blind bid system. Uh, Blood Rage. It's the same sort of thing with the combat cards. You have your units on there, and then everyone's playing these combat cards. Well, not
2: everyone. Someone
1: might not some, be. Well, some people might not be, So, but it's sort of like a blind bid. Fury of Dracula has the same sort of combat system. You're all playing you know, cards face down. And wouldn't you say Tigers and Euphrates is sort of the same sort of blind bidding system?
2: I do, actually. I do think it is a blind bid. The difference being that it dovetails with hand management. As opposed to everyone having the f- same fixed set, it's about building up towards the next push. It's about spending the necessary actions to try to specialize your hand for that next uh, that next event. And uh, so I agree entirely that it's a blind bid, but it's a blind bid whereby you have to be able to see the conflicts coming and be able to prepare yourself. Yeah, it definitely doesn't
1: fall into the same negativity as these other, other, of these other ones where you just don't have the cards that you need or there was no way for you to get them or there was no way... You know, in Tigers and Freedies, you can plan ahead. That's all I have for secret bids and sets of combat cards. Next I have up is complicated card systems. Something like a Forbidden Stars, Mm. where it's this elaborate... Or StarCraft. StarCraft, upgrading your cards and having this elaborate, Uh... you know, army deck. And then there's like a sort of mini game as you hold up the game for 15 minutes while the rest of the players go have lunch and you get to do your combat.
2: Are you suggesting that Final Fan- that, that Fantasy Flight, on occasion, has had overcomplicated Baroque systems that I, did not result in superior play experiences? I never said that once. Okay, well, that doesn't sound like something you'd say. That's a lie.
1: Fake news. Next up, I have auction-type combat. So I had a, a great little game that, for some reason, I don't have anymore. Iliad. It was a sort of like a uh, Greek... You're... You, Everyone's constantly putting out cards and building up a total and you sort of like and you're gonna have a set number of cards so you can say, Well, there's no way I'm gonna win this, I'm gonna pull out now, so next round I'll have a better chance. Uh what's the the other fantasy flight yellow box? I con can't, contier Condotiere.
2: Yeah, it's a, sort, sort of sort of an uh, escalation again. This is this this is where the auction routes are a little bit more straightforward. There's a slightly more wargamey version of it that you would find in Sekigahara, where cards are a very very scarce resource, and your combat units will only attack if they are activated by a specific card. And there's the sense of escalation actually reminds me of Blue Moon, one of I was my favorite say, games. Blue yeah.
1: Moon Legends, as I have here as well.
2: Yeah, the sort of escalating combat system where you're encouraged to go deeper and deeper in, in debt just to try to win the fight.
1: Yeah. And knowing when to pull out sort of like the, you know, land, air, and sea type thing, you know, you know, you're not going to win, pull out now, save your cards for another fight. And that's all I have for card systems. Next up, I have two games, which use a system that I find very interesting and enjoy cry havoc and rising sun. They have these sort of hidden boards that you sort of place tokens on and they sort of modify combat in in cry havoc you're using the actual units in the fight in rising sun you're using uh the currency and to do different things and then you reveal and then it modifies combat slightly and i love both of those systems another blind bid another blind bid with a little hook absolutely and then Rock, Paper, Scissors, we've already talked about that, Age of Mythology. And then there's combat systems that are just pure negotiation, where you just sort of talk it out. Pure negotiation? Pure negotiation. You just
2: convince your opponent to lose?
1: Yes. Well, there's some some of those combat systems where it will say, now it's time to fight. And you'll look at areas where there's two opponents, and you can say, well, do you want to fight in this? You know, there's a lot of games ah. out there where, you, you know, you can engage in combat or not engage in combat, and you sort of, you know... Talk about whether or not you should have a fight or not.
2: Like Antica, like yeah. a number, yeah, like a number of other games like that. I, I I hear what you're saying. I was actually thought you might be headed towards games where it's kind of a combat resolution system via intimidation, ah. like Cash and Guns, where you're mostly just trying to posture and convince other people that they're not that they don't want to fight, even though you've got nothing. Uh, it could be, I suppose. Oh, what I'm saying is that poker is a combat resolution mechanism. There you go. That has been a, a whirlwind tour, and I think you've been quite comprehensive. All right. So, like I said,
1: my two favorite ones are the Combat Tower and Dexterity versus, and my these two are sort of equal, is is the, the Scythe, Dune, Rising Sun, Game of Thrones, Kemet, outguess your opponent, where they sort of know how much you have, and they totally outgun you. So they could play their lowest card. <laughs> like, why would they waste their high card? Because they know, they think you're going to, you know, so, so they might just throw away a card too. Like, there's no way I can beat them. So why would I waste a good card? I'm just going to throw away this one, but they might think I'm going to play the one. So if I play my highest card and they play their lowest card, then, you know, you've, that kind of back and forth,
2: I love. So that dynamic I like in economic systems. When you're bidding on a resource, when you're bidding on a good, when you're high, when you're effectively bidding over a tile as you would in Raw, I really enjoy that dynamic of trying to undercut somebody, of using your economic weakness as a strength. In combat systems, though, I don't tend to view it as enjoyable. I tend to overcommit and I tend to be brutally conservative. In when I when I play Scythe, I'm typically the guy who builds up a solid amount of power and then picks on the person with low power and then overspends, spending the most that I would need to spend to guarantee a win over and over again, primarily because when it's a zero sum conflict area type of situation, I don't find that kind of particular psychological double guessing to be, to be to my taste. But again, that is purely a preference thing. Oh, 100%. I prefer the quick, clean little mini games like Vengeance, like Zero Dark, where I get to manipulate my dice in fun little ways, where I get to try to maximize the results of my roll after I've already made the roll and and gotten that done, where I can start spending my successes from a menu of available actions. That's also one of the things I like about Aristea. It's like, well, I can use that result to do this thing, or I could use that result to do this other thing based on these special powers that I have. Those are the kind of situations where, again, your combat mechanism starts to feed into a whole bunch of other things. It's not necessarily at the level of Senji where every element of the game comes together in this delicious whole, but at least is a way to implicate those other elements of whether it's positioning or whether it's building up buffs or perhaps even running up a scoreboard in in, in more blunt cases like in Aristea sometimes. I like it when game mechanisms fit together and the combat mechanism isn't purely just a representation of how hard I hit you in the face.
1: And it doesn't slow the game down to a ridiculous
2: snail pace, right there's a balance you have to yeah sometimes it can start to get on a knife edge where i'm just playing with my little results and you don't get to do anything about it so i like it when there's enough intricacy where i can have a little bit of room to play but not so intricate that i'm starting to look at the combination of upgrading this card versus activating this die and retrieving this other thing that you would find in something like starcraft or in forbidden stars absolutely well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, dice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!